Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. It's almost summer. You know what that means. Grilling season is upon us. Tell be sure that you have your best grilling season ever. Today, I talked to Matt Moore, AOM's resident food writer and the author of Cereal Griller, Grillmaster Secrets for Flame Cook Perfection. We begin our conversation discussing Matt's trips around the country to glean the best stories and tips from our nation's foremost grillmasters. We first unpacked why the Maillard reaction is so important to creating delicious brown food and how to ensure you get that effect when you grill. From there, we dive into more of the secrets of better grilling, including the pros and cons of different types of fuels and grill types, and the essential tools to have on hand when making flame-cooked grub. Matt then offers his surprising take on the best way to grill a burger, and explains how to grill the perfect steak, cook chicken so it doesn't dry out, and fire up fish without it falling apart. We end our discussion with Matt's grilled, mouth-watering alternative to the traditional peach cobbler. It is sounds really, really good. You'll be ready to fire up the grill after listening to the show. After it's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash cereal griller. Matt joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Mr. Matt Moore, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. So you are AOM's resident food writer. I'm sure people who've been following the site have seen your your food content you've been putting out for us for a couple of years. And I mean, man, it's I think coming like on 10 it's years now. It's probably like 10 years, yeah. 10 years. <laughs> but you got a new book out, Cereal Griller, Grill Master Secrets for Flame Cooked Perfection. We're about to start the grilling season here, about to kick it off. So I want to make this episode sort of the guide to the, to the grilling season, so you have the best grilling season ever. But before we get to the tips and tricks of how to be a grill master, what I love about your cookbooks that you've done in the past is that you had these stories. You you hop into your Cessna. You're, you got your pilot's license. You're a cool guy. You're, you're filling every fantasy that most dudes have. And you fly around the country and you go and you visit people who who cook for a living and are really good at what they do and they're passionate about the, what they do and get their story, but also tips from them. So tell us, before we get into the, our, the sort of the practical how-to stuff, tell us about some of the people that you visited to write this book. Yeah, I mean, thank you. You make me sound cooler than I really am. I promise it's not that exciting in real life, but it, it looks good in, in, in print. So, um, yeah, we traveled 10,000 miles for Cereal Griller, which was quite different than the book I had done prior, which was called The South's Best Butts that we talked about. And it is a cookbook, not a calendar. There, we were just traveling the barbecue belt. But the cool thing about grilling is that it really expands the horizon. So, it doesn't matter where you come from, your race, your creed, your cuisine, your culture, everybody really enjoys the art of grilling. So, you know, just some of my favorites are folks like Meathead out of Chicago, who's known throughout the barbecue and grilling world. He's uh, just a character. He's lived nine different lives. He was a wine critic at one point. He runs one of the more successful online sites, and he's really just a scientist when it comes to food. And spending a day with him was was really unique, some of the science that he has behind grilling and barbecue. At the same time, we worked with some of the country's best chefs. I think, you know, I've always had as a food writer, really the aptitude to make sure that all of my writing is speaking to folks that are maybe just starting out. And that's why I'm excited to kind of get into some details of grilling with you today. But we had two of the last James Beard chefs, outstanding chefs, and Michael Solomonoff up in Philadelphia and Ashley Christensen in Raleigh. And for those that are outside the food world, that's kind of like becoming the Michael Jordan, if you will, of cooking each year, they announce essentially the best chef in America. So both of those are are focused in it as well. And there's also just incredible experiences. There's a gentleman by the name of Jerry Baird, 
who is one of the last chuck wagon cooks. And if you're thinking in your mind about being out on the open Texas plains of hill country with a chuck wagon and cooking in Dutch ovens, that's exactly what we did. And a guy like Jerry is just one of those special souls when you get to spend an afternoon with him and glean his knowledge and eat his food and obviously hear all of his stories. It's, it's just those types of memories that I hope people will thumb through, read the book, get some inspiration for recipes, and especially now bring them a lot of joy by kind of coming on that road trip with me. Yeah. The, uh, the Chuck Master guy, that was one of my favorite stories. I was like, man, there's still Chuck Master. Like he started a whole association for Chuck Wagon yeah, guys. Yeah. It's a, uh, was a dying art until he became involved. And I think that's one of the things we always talk about here on Art of Manliness is, is using your passions to, to create opportunities. And he's certainly somebody who has taken a dying art and now spread it beyond just the United States, but Europe and Canada and everywhere in between. So super cool. And one of the things that the story, that your stories highlight is how universal grilling is. I mean, pretty much, as you said earlier, pretty much every culture has some sort of grilling culture within their food culture. And I, I mean, you highlighted, I mean, for one, you highlight a lot of Greek guys. Greeks love grilled meat. Yeah. Just down the street where I live in, in East Nashville is a place called Greco, which is kind of an Athenian style Greek street food ambiance. And I think a lot of Americans are kind of introduced to Greek food from, you know, family run restaurants where they're still using that kind of shaving off the cone euro that's usually processed, <laughs> but they're actually doing it in true kebab and suvaki style. So really unique recipes there. And then kind of a similar cuisine that we also focus on is Michael Solomon off the, the James Beard winner up in Philadelphia. He runs a place called Zahav, which is Israeli food, which shares a lot of commonalities. And you know that restaurant was literally named the best restaurant in America. So it's a lot of fun to have some, some recipes that are still applicable and, and easy for uh, the everyday person to pull off at home. All right. So let's get into how to make this the best grilling season ever. But before we do, let's talk about the science of grilling. What is it, what's going on with grilled meat that makes it taste so dang good? Yeah. You know, after coming on the heels of writing a barbecue book, uh, a pit master told me one time that in barbecue, nothing good happens above 300 degrees. It was similar to what a college professor told me one time that nothing good happens after 2 a.m., but in barbecue and you know, grilling specifically, the idea of everything happening good above 300 degrees is actually scientifically described by a reaction that a French chemist came up with known as the Maillard reaction, where you have the natural amino acids and enzymes. It doesn't just limit itself to, to proteins, but vegetables and fruits, even toasted bread or my favorite, making beer everything good is is occurring at that moment. And so, you know, throughout the book, we spent a lot of time talking about tips and tricks to always make sure that you're allowing that reaction to occur. Now, if we're already flying above people's head, just remember this, brown food is good food. It creates that savory umami flavor that we all love from grilling specifically. And so that's uh, what we're always seeking to happen. And that typically is occurring anywhere that you're cooking above that 300 degree marker. All right. But the other thing too, to make that, to get that, you want high heat, but you also want low, low moisture to get that nice reaction as well, right? Yeah. You know, when we talk about cooking as we have over the last decade, you know, we, we do have recipes on the site that talk about poaching or steaming. But in this instance, we really want to get rid of the moisture because the moisture would prevent that reaction from occurring. So in an instance where I might be cooking a nice piece of fish, I want to make sure that I pat it dry, even a steak, even a vegetable, because if there's too much moisture, 
on whatever I'm putting on that grill, essentially those first few minutes where we're able to create that high heat sear, we're eliminating that opportunity from happening because we've got too much moisture. And same thing that we've talked about earlier, like with a great kebab, you know, one big mistake that people make is overcrowding that skewer or putting too many items on the grill to start. And again, you're lowering that temperature down and you're not allowing that Maillard reaction to occur. And that's why you also don't want to cook frozen meat. Right. Cause you're just, it's just moisture there. And like that first couple, I don't know, probably 10, 20 minutes, you're just melting the ice and it's just getting into the meat. Yeah. And uh, you're just not getting a consistent cook either. Right. You know, the outside versus the inside. And one of the things I loved, a quick tidbit, is you see a lot of recipes that say, you know, bring meat up to room temperature. And I was careful not to do that because you could take a, a steak that's one inch thick and pull it out of your refrigerator. And eight hours later, if you put a a digital meat thermometer into the middle of it, it wouldn't be a a 68 to 70 degrees. It's still probably, you know, 45, 50 degrees. But the idea of pulling meats out of of a cool zone, whether that's the fridge or a cooler, if you're outdoors cooking, you just want to take that initial chill off, like you said, so that you're not immediately shocking the grill. So that's one of the other big tips that we play out throughout the book. All right, so high heat, low moisture. Uh, let's talk about heat sources for grilling because there's a whole bunch of different options out there. Walk us through them and t- the pros and cons of each one, and which one do you recommend for a rank beginner? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, the the original is just hardwoods. Obviously, things like hickory and mesquite, and that's something that you would typically burn down away from your grill. Maybe it's a fire pit. We saw it done in the book in a barrel. And you take those coals and you put them, you know, obviously underneath your grate so that you can cook food. And, you know, that's a that's a two-step process. It can be timely, but I think the ambiance of it and just the romanticism of actually burning a fire and using those coals is, is really unique. Speaking of wood, you know, one of the things that's really come in uh, play from a technological standpoint is the idea of pellet grilling. So using actual wood pellets to to cook on a, on a grill that's uh, using electricity and a fan to, to cook that at the right temperature. I love those for folks that are wanting to have really precise temperature control, kind of a set it and forget it and get that good wood flavor. It's, it's a no-brainer. They are a little bit expensive. They do rely on electricity. And then the problem that I find most often is that they just don't get above really 400 degrees. So if I'm really trying to get that beautiful sear on a steak, the pellet grill can fall short. I think most of us are probably most familiar with, you know, charcoal comes really in two forms. Most folks prefer a lump charcoal, which is just more of a natural wood piece that comes in multiple sizes. There's different qualities. It produces less ash. And it's one of those things that you can continue to reuse. And you see those in a lot of the egg style cookers that are out there. But even some experts that we interviewed in the book prefer briquettes. You know, Meathead out of Chicago, who's one of the the most widely known experts in, in barbecue, really prefers the briquette, even though it produces a little bit more ash. Uh, what he likes about it is if I were to write a recipe and I told you to, you know, create 12 briquettes, we can actually really consistently measure the heat because those are uniform in size. And we're going to get really good results when it comes to uh, having consistency with a recipe. Whereas lump charcoal, comes in, you might have a piece that's, you know, two inches, you might have one that's six inches. So you're going to get kind of different burn temperatures from using lump. Uh, Of course, we do have to address the fact that about 75% of Americans own a gas grill. So I think convenience is king when it comes to using that, that source when it comes to grilling. And, and one of the cool things we do in the book is we actually give instructions for every single recipe about 
whether you're using a gas grill or you're using a charcoal or wood style setup. And, and to me, my goal is just to get more people grilling. Obviously, if you're using gas, uh, you're sacrificing from some of the flavor that you get from wood and charcoal. But at the same time, you're picking up a whole lot of convenience. And then, you know, finally, during my bachelor years, lived in some apartment complexes that wouldn't allow me to have access to charcoal, gas, or wood. So electric grills, you know, you can utilize a, a cast iron pan on the stovetop. We've talked a lot about that at Art of Manliness over the years, electric style grills that allow you to do that. And even one of the cool things that's come on the market is an infrared grill, which is using electricity and infrared technology that's smokeless, that allows you to still kind of get that ambiance and flavor as well. So a whole lot of options out there. I'm not one to discriminate. I, like I said, I just want to get you grilling. Uh, yeah, I've got, I've got a gas grill and I just like it because I can just walk out whenever and just get it going and like seconds, literally. But you also highlight tricks, the little hacks you can do to get a you know that sort of smoky flavor that you would with a charcoal or wood with a gas grill. It's not going to be exactly the same, but it gives a bit of flavor. Yeah, and you know any grocery store today where you're picking up your charcoal, you're going to find wood chips right next to it. So the concept is to to make a foil packet with those. You know, make a few holes in it, put some chips in there, and put that on the grill right when you're 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 allowing those that steak or whatever you're wanting that piece of chicken to have some of that smoke flavor, and just allow it to build up that smoke. I typically like to pull it off after maybe five to ten minutes, so you don't get a burn flavor from those chips. But uh, it's one of the ways to impart some smoke flavor and and also enjoy the convenience of gas grilling. All right, so we've talked about the different heat sources: wood, charcoal and gas and electricity. The other thing that there's a lot of choices now these days are the type of grill you use. I mean, back in the day when we were kids, it was like Weber grill. That was it. Now you go to the hardware store and there's just whole, there's eggs, green eggs, the gas, the infrared, there's the different types of charcoal. So walk us through the different types of grills and which one, like what do they do, the pros and cons, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, you know, the most common grill that you're going to find, whether it's a, a Weber-style kettle grill or even a gas grill, is what I would refer to as a closed setup. And the idea is that you actually have a lid. So you're able to grill with the lid off for an open-style grill, and then you can put that lid on top. And the, the concept there is that you're trapping heat so that you can vec the heat. And it's the same concept if I were to have a cast iron grill pan on my stovetop, that would be an open setup. But if I'm putting it into the oven, it's sort of like me closing my grill to trap that heat. There are just open style grills. Uh, one of my favorites is a Lodge cast iron sportsman grill. It's made completely of cast iron and it's just a, a an open setup. So, you know, we can't trap the heat by closing the lid. So oftentimes you see that in cuisines like Middle Eastern cuisines or Asian cuisines where you are cooking skewers that you don't have to trap the heat. They're smaller sizes so that they can cook up rather quickly. So that's what we could, would consider more of an open style setup. And then, as you mentioned earlier, kind of the Ed style setup, the Kamado style as it's referred to. We were just hit here by the, uh, the tornado in Nashville in March. And I have a Golden's cast iron Kamado grill. It weighs, I think, Brett, like 800 pounds. They dropped it off on a flatbed. So wow. uh, that was one of the things in my backyard that was not destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's where we're using either cast iron or ceramic to create a really well insulated grill so that you can cook either at high heat temperatures or low and slow if you're looking to do more of a barbecue style cooking. And then we have 
what we could center, you know, kind of hybrid setups. You could go out right now and buy a gas grill that can also function as a charcoal grill. So for you, Brett, during a busy weekday, if you just want to fire up the gas grill, super convenient. But on the weekend, if you might want to have a little more of that charcoal flavor, uh, those are really solid options to give folks as, as much access as possible to uh, to meet their grilling needs. Yeah, I know. I remember like when the egg grill started becoming really popular a couple years ago, people really started nerding out on those. They got really geeky with them. Oh yeah. I mean, they call them eggheads, obviously, and there's uh, several different brands that are out there. And I, I think they just provide a lot of versatility. I think pellet grills would probably come on the market because they're even easier. Uh, obviously with the, the egg style grill, you're having to still light the charcoal. You're having to open the vents and control temperature, even though it's very well insulated. Whereas the pellet grill, you just turn a knob, <laughs> like I said, and the fan is going to fuel those pellets into making sure that that temperature is always right. So it's just depending on what your style is and, and, and what you're looking to do. They, they all offer different levels of convenience, but you know they also give kind of different variances when you're really looking for what you want to do. I, I love to have access and control the temperature. If I were to just set it and forget it, my wife would make me be off doing other things because she would know it's that easy. I've convinced her that what I'm doing is extremely difficult and it takes a lot of work. <laughs> well, you mentioned the vents on the Weber grill. Th- those are things that have always befuddled me. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with these? When do I leave them open, partially open? When do I close them? So because there's there's some on the top and then there's some on the bottom. It's like when, walk us, when do you keep those open or closed? Yeah. And so vents and dampeners kind of uh, mutually exclusive in that scenario. If you're reading instructions, you know, the idea is if I were to take a a traditional Weber kettle grill, I want to open that bottom vent completely as I'm lighting my charcoal. If I were lighting it in the grill using maybe a charcoal chimney or one of those nifty tools that you can actually just kind of turbo light charcoal, you just stick it in there and it's got a a high heater and a fan to, to get it started quickly. So we want to open those vents because what allows fire to live is is oxygen. So the more air that we're giving it, especially when we're lighting a grill, we want to have as much air as possible. So those vents on the bottom are completely open. As you start to close the grill, you know, one of the things if you're cooking a steak and you really want to trap as much heat as possible, but keep the oxygen flowing, you would open both the bottom completely open and the top. And I like to tell people that the bottom temperature control that's where you're making decisions about, do I want this fire to be 300 degrees or 400 degrees? So you're making larger adjustments because that's where the, the airflow is, is first kind of entering in. And then it's coming up through the food source and then exiting through the top. And the, and the top vent is where we're making decisions between 15, 25, 50 degrees. So if I were to cook a steak, I want to cook it as hot as po- possible in some instances. So I've got the the, the vents completely open on the top and the bottom. If I'm cooking uh, something more like a, a piece of fish, which I might want a lower fire, right, you know, right around that 300 degree marker, then I'll be closing off those vents so that I'm just being able to control the airflow, which is also going to control the heat that's coming in a charcoal and a wood setup. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. All right, that makes sense. All right, now I know. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so let's talk about light, lighting up a grill. Uh, you mentioned a few ways you can do the chimney. There's got turbocharger things. What do you think is the best way to light a, a grill going? You know, I, I really like that kind of technology. I'm probably calling it the wrong thing, a turbocharger. It sounds like something out of the 80s, but um, I, I love it because I just dump charcoal in and then I, I stick that in and, and within a few minutes, I've got a, a fire. But the problem is if you're trying to get something done very quickly, 
The issue is you've got to kind of continue to stoke that fire around several different points. And before you know it, you've spent 10 minutes sitting out there lighting different points in the fire. I think for a chimney, it's super convenient. And and I would argue, Brett, uh, we need to get you a charcoal grill because uh, you could actually just stuff some newspaper into a chimney, fill it with lump charcoal or briquettes, light it. And within about 10 to 15 minutes, they're going to be rip roaring hot. You pull them right into the grill and you'll be preheated. And about the same time that you would have with your gas grill as well. So I'm a big fan of the chimney. I'm not a fan of, you know, the match light style briquettes or using, you know, any types of alternative fuel sources. You know, I grew up watching my dad put a lot of that lighter fluid on charcoal and and truth be told, his burgers always tasted like lighter fluid. Yeah. If you are stuck in a pinch, which I sometimes am with like maybe a good tailgate and people pick up the wrong things. My advice is to always make sure that if you're using uh, a match light charcoal or a lighter fluid to get that fire started, that is okay. You just want to make sure that those coals are completely grayed out before you start cooking. I see a lot of people that start to cook too preemptively and it still has some of that lighter fluid flavor. And, and that's not something you want to be imparted in your food. I've done that. I remember we had some people over for grilling. It's like when we first got married and it was like my first time grilling. I grilled some burgers and I got the, I just poured lighter fluid all, because I, I did what my dad did. Sure. And my <laughs> wife is like, after it was over, I mean, I knew it was like, man, this tastes like lighter fluid. My wife's like, that tasted just like lighter fluid. I'm sure they thought <laughs> that tasted like, and so I, I haven't, I haven't done that since. So yeah, that's a good point. Like when do you start, like say, if, even if you use charcoal or briquettes, or whatever, like when do you, when do you throw the meat on the grill? Cause I think I, I've, I probably have had it. I've probably been throwing meat on too early. Yeah, I mean, the, the clear indicator, like I said, is the beauty of both briquettes and the lump charcoal is they will they will gray over into that, you know, kind of orange and gray ember. And, and that's a, a great time. And I wouldn't be too stressed either about worrying that the fire is going to go out. I mean, whether you're using lump charcoal or briquettes, even if you've just got maybe a half a chimney's worth, that's still going to cook for you for at least 30 to 45 minutes after they've gone gray. So give it a little bit of time, allow it to do its thing. That's going to pick up the best flavor. You won't have to worry about you know anything off-putting. And you're also going to have the best control. If you put it on too early, that fire is still kind of working its way and lighting coals and uh, you're just not getting the maximum result out of that charcoal. Uh, what's your take on you know, creating heat zones in your grill? I am a huge fan of always, whenever possible, uh, if necessary, setting up what I call a two-zone fire. We can do that really easily on a gas grill, right? Most gas grills have a few different burners. So if you're working on a two-burner, a three-burner, a four-burner, the idea is that you know one side of my grill, I'm going to dial that knob up to medium-high, and the other side of the grill, I'll, I'll dial to a medium-low. Of course, when you're cooking with gas, if you feel like it's too hot, you can just turn down the knobs and immediately kind of reduce that temperature. But you don't really have that luxury with charcoal because there's no knob to turn it on or off. Obviously, we talked about changing some of the oxygen and airflow, but that takes more time. So by setting up a two-zone fire, if I'm cooking you know, a burger or a steak or a piece of chicken... I might want to put that chicken breast on the grill over the direct zone to get that skin nice and crispy. But I know that if I leave it there, you know, it's going to burn that actual skin and I'm not going to get the result I want. So then I move it to the indirect zone and I can play between the two 
which gives me control over the fire. And I think that's a big mistake that a lot of folks make, especially when they're starting out. You mentioned your mistake about everything tasting like charcoal. And I think it's so funny how as you become older, you realize some of the things your dad did wrong. My dad did that one. The first time we went fishing as an adult, I I remember him not really being able to tie a hook. And I I thought to myself, he taught me how to do this. So it's always weird when you're teaching those lessons, but um, setting up that two zone and not just having it all in one place will give a lot of folks comfort and control over the cooking process. And so with charcoal to create that two zone, like one side would have all the charcoal, the other you'd leave the other side empty, maybe. In that instance, we would refer to that as horizontally offset or indirect. So you've piled the coals to one side. There are some other grills that allow you flexibility from a vertical standpoint as well. You could actually, you know, move the grates up and down. So some of my favorite ones that have that type of setup, you can, you can alter the, the, the vertical separation between the grate and the coals. So if I put it down close to the coals, I'm getting a direct zone. And obviously if I move the grate more vertically uh, away from that, then that creates an indirect zone as well. I think the, the hasty bake grill based here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, they, they have that feature. They do. And actually what's unique about the hasty bake is it does not have a top vent. It's got a bottom vent and then it has the exit vent, which is actually below the food grate. And their concept there was to really make the heat convect around the the heat source rather than coming up from the bottom and just exiting the top. It makes it kind of spin around the grill. And that's one of the unique tools about that grill. And it's one of my favorites, quite frankly. It's really nice. I I went to a demonstration down at the headquarters and I was like, I want one of these. They're pretty, they're pretty pricey, but I think if you're really into cooking, it might be worth it. Yeah. Uh, there's a gentleman, uh, at burn company that we featured Adam, who actually was a hasty bake grill salesperson. And he said, they've been selling them the same way with the old show and tell method to customers ever since they came out. So it's a, it's a fantastic product. So you mentioned convection. That's, that's something we can probably get into because when you're grilling meat, you're cooking the meat in different ways, right? Like, like we talk about the convection, conduction. I can't, I don't know all of them, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we talk about like direct heat is a, is a term that's really common throughout all recipes. So that's kind of radiant heat. And you could just think of that as like heat from the sun, right? It's just radiant. It's just beaming down on you. Uh, convection would be what I would refer to as kind of indirect grilling. I give a scenario in the book, like if I'm standing in the sun, I'm I'm picking up all that radiant heat. If I go under the shade, it's a little more gentle, but it's sort of like convection heat. It's still hot. And then we also have to take in mind conduction. That's the actual heat that we get from conducting heat, for example, on a metal grate. So standing out in the sun, it's radiant heat. It's direct heat. I get under a shade tree. It's still indirect heat. It's convective. But if I sit on a, a metal bench it's also conduction. So you got a, a lot of different features that are taking place that you have to think about when you're grilling. All right. So let's talk about tools that you think people should have on hand for grilling besides tongs and maybe a spatula. Anything else besides that? You know, we live in a day and age where technology can be our friend. And one of the things I always recommend, especially if you've not had any experience, and it's not just uh, just grilling alone, it's just a, a digital meat thermometer. I mean, why worry about it when you have a piece of equipment that you can buy a a decent one for for 
10 to 15 bucks. It's going to give you the internal temperature and also temperatures within your grill. I mean, one of the first things to go wrong on a grill is the actual thermometer that comes with it. So I recommend that folks maybe buy a thermometer for actually really gauging the, the heat level within the grill, but also a digital meat thermometer to make sure that their temperatures are cooked up to speed. So if you want to make sure that steak is always going to be medium rare, you're going to be able to find out very quickly. If you're too worried about the chicken not being completely done, you know it's, it's something that you can learn. And I, I say that because as you cook with time, your reliance on that meat thermometer becomes less and less. If you cooked a, a steak 100 times in your life, you, you know and, and just by uh, sensation and feel and timing and experience, you'll be able to pull that off. But one of those great tools. Uh, you mentioned tongs, but I use them all the time when it comes to grilling. I mean, that's my, my most used tool. I also think that it's super important for you to have, you know, like a grill pan or a basket. You know, we, we do talk a lot beyond just cooking meats and proteins about vegetables and salads. And oftentimes we don't want those things to get lost in the charcoal. So having a grill pan or a basket allows us to, um, you know, roast cut corn very quickly. So you get kind of that caramel style corn instead of doing it on the cob. So some of those tools are, are really useful. You don't have to invest a lot of money. And the last one would be just keeping your grill clean. So a, a simple scraper. If you don't have that on hand, you know, one of my favorite things to use is just foil. We use foil a lot when we're grilling. I go to a local campsite with my family. And if there's an old school grill out there, I didn't bring my grill brush, but I can just crumple up some foil, scrape that up against the grates, and it, it cleans off that grill to my satisfaction. No, the meat thermometer is a game changer because, I mean, in the past, before I got one, if I wanted to check if the meat was done, you have to take it off and just like, cut it open, which just ruins yeah, it for the presentation. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, I, I highly recommend it. It's also just good to have, like if you do smoking or you're roasting, I, mean, I use it all the time when we roast our annual uh, prime rib, got to have the meat thermometer. It's a great, yeah. great birthday gift, great father's day gift, or just pick one up for yourself. You're going to treat yourself. And they're complicated. You know, I, I have a real cheap one. It goes back to that style of there's Bluetooth ones that speak to your phone, but I, I kind of like the idea of having an excuse to go outside because if I'm just sitting inside uh, on the Bluetooth and my wife knows, like I said, she's going to come up with other things for me to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got the grill going, got our tools, time to grill. Let's start with the basics because Memorial Day is coming up. People around the country are going to be grilling burgers. What's the best way to grill a burger so it's not just some sort of charred, thick hockey puck? Great question. You know, one of my favorite articles that we've done for Art of Manliness is the Hemingway burger, which he oh, recommended. Yeah being cooked on a, on a flat top. So actually in the book, we visit Alma Mater, the University of Georgia, and we go to a place that's called The Grill. And uniquely there, they're actually using a flat top griddle fueled by electricity. So I know some grilling purists will take aim, but I, I truly believe a burger is best cooked on a flat top, uh, especially in cast iron, because it just creates an even sear it allows the burger to cook in its own juices. I think that Hemingway burger recipe is fantastic. We have a triple cheeseburger recipe in the book. We've got mushroom Swiss burgers. But if you want to actually do it out on your grill and pick up some of that nice charcoal flavor, if that's what you're using, you can just put a, a cast iron pan directly on those grill grates, allow it to preheat like you would on the stovetop, and then cook your burger accordingly. So it's one of my all-time favorite tricks, and it's absolutely the best way to cook a burger. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I mean, over like I always because I every we do the grilling on the the grill with the burger, and, and as you're you're grilling the burgers, you just hear all that fat 
dripping it and hissing. It's like, that's all the flavor. It's going away. Yeah. But then when you get the, when you put it on the flat top, it just tastes a lot better. hundred percent. And it's kind of more foolproof. It's easier to turn them, you know, so you can pick up a cheap cast iron pan and, and, and have one always outside for your grilling needs. It's one of my favorite ways to go. And, and, and truth be told, one of my favorite meals, that's just a, a super classic that we find uh, in multi layers throughout the book. Any, any prep on that? Just simple salt and pepper. What's your take? I mean, always with a burger, simple salt and pepper, you know, the Hemingway burger involved. That's pretty, it, it's <laughs> uh, almost like a, it's almost like a meatloaf. Yeah. And, but I'll tell you, man, it is seriously <laughs> delicious. I'm not just saying it because uh, Hemingway came up with it. It's honestly one of the best burgers I've ever had. It's, it's a good, it, it, it was a good burger. All right. So burgers, cast iron skillet, or at least buy something cast iron you put on the grill. Other classic grilling is steak. What's the best way to grill a steak to get the perfect, just mm, juicy steak? Yeah. You know, we actually explore a couple different methods and, and we've explored this in some articles as well. But I, I think if you're using a thinner cut of steak, you know, whether it's like a, a strip steak or something along those lines or a skirt steak, we, we want to cook it really as hot and fast as possible because it's, it's thin. So we want to get that Maillard reaction to occur. But we don't want to cook it too long because otherwise we're going to cook it past my preferred preference of, of a medium rare to rare. So in those instances, you really want to use that kind of hot and fast method to, to develop the sear, to allow that steak to get that nice char on both sides, but pull it off the heat and allow it to rest so that you're not bringing that internal temperature above 130 degrees. Now, when it comes to larger cuts, like a tomahawk steak, which is really popular right now, or thick-cut ribeyes, or even a filet, one of the techniques that's become very, very popular that we showcase in the book is the reverse sear. Meathead, the, the gentleman that I mentioned earlier, he calls it the redneck sous vide. And for those, again, that it may have flown past you, sous vide is a French-style cooking where you immerse things in a, a water-controlled bath at a low temperature. You can actually do the same thing on a grill by cooking it at indirect heat, maybe at around 185 degrees, a, a grill temperature, so very, very low heat. And what happens is, uh, over time, that entire cut, if it's a, a thick ribeye, for example, from edge to edge, the idea is that you know we'll bring that entire piece of meat very, very gently and slowly up to our desired temperature, call it maybe 120 degrees. We'll pull it off of that and then get our fire nice and hot and then sear the steak to create that Maillard reaction. Remember, brown food is good food. And what ends up happening is you'll have a, a steak that's perfectly cooked edge to edge at that 130 to 135 degrees. Whereas if I were to take a big thick tomahawk and do it in the traditional manner of cooking it over direct heat to get a sear and then moving it off, we're really only going to have kind of a, a thinner zone of that perfect temperature. So the reverse sear is something that I really encourage. It's also great for entertaining because you can actually uh, pre-cook those steaks maybe an hour or so in advance. And then when your guests arrive, you can cook them up to temperature based on each guest's preference. How long does that slow part of the reverse here take? Like, is it 40 minutes, an hour? Is it, what are you, what is it, what are you looking at? 
Yeah, I think, you know, the steak, whatever cut you're using, it needs to be at least an inch and a quarter thick, preferably thicker in my opinion. So at at 185 degrees, if you can get your gas grill, you you might just be putting one burner on, on, on the lowest setting and then cooking it horizontally offset as far as possible, just to kind of keep it away and make it a gentle heat because we want to bring the entire piece up at the same time. So you're looking at 45 to to 50 minutes for something like that. And again, that's another area where a a great digital thermometer is going to benefit you. And and I'll tell folks, if if they're going to do this, don't worry that when you get through that 45 to 50 minute period, that it looks sort of like this gray mass, you're going to sear it off and get that delicious, beautiful look from the, the charred meat. But the cool thing is when you slice into it, you actually really don't even have to let it rest because you've cooked it so gently. The entire steak should be that perfect medium rare, that 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 dark pink center that you're looking for. And you wrote an article on the reverse here a couple years ago for AOM. And so- um, We did. Yeah. We'll, we'll make sure to link to that. And I, I know when people did it, like we got letters saying that was the best steak I've ever had in my entire life. So it works. It works. I love that. And, and prep on steak, again, simple salt, pepper. That's pretty much it. Yeah, pat them dry. I, I think one thing I really like that I've been doing just right now, and we we make mention of it in the book, is is a dry brine. You know, every Thanksgiving there's always these stories about brining and how complex it is, and it's 24 hours. I, I always think that's a little bit of nonsense. I, I think a dry brine is essentially just adding a decent amount of of kosher salt to proteins to vegetables, maybe an hour or so before you cook. So if I have a big old thick tomahawk or a ribeye, I'm actually just going to season it pretty liberally on both sides with salt. And that will actually absorb and, and allow the, the steak to, to retain moisture on the grill. And then patting it dry before you put it on, you grill it, and it actually is still going to need some some more salt after you cook it. I like to, to maybe slice it and season it with some nice sea salt or again, kosher salt right before I serve it as well. Yeah, my mouth's watering right now. <laughs> All right, let's talk about chicken. And I've found in my years of grilling, I found chicken to be surprisingly tricky to grill. Like it's trickier than beef. Because like what will happen is I'll get it nice. I'll get that nice brown on the outside. Then you cut open to it and it's just raw. So what's going on? What am I doing wrong with chicken? Yeah, I mean, chicken can be one of those finicky proteins to really perfect. And it's really obviously just as similar to a a turkey because it's the same style. I I think first and foremost, what do we love about chicken? Well, we love that crispy skin and we love it when it's really nice and tender and juicy. And so what we have to do is is to be able to create uh, the ability for us to control getting that nice crispy skin, but also having the temperature to a place that we're not burning it to where it dries out. And I think that's really where a two-zone fire really shines. So in that instance, I will typically take a whole chicken, which I love, and I'll do a method which we call a a spatchcock. Essentially, we just take kitchen shears or a nice knife and cut out the backbone. It's very simple. And then we are able to turn it back over kind of like an open book and then just press down on the breast, which will just pop the breast. And that will allow us to create an even surface. So the, the, the dark meat and the white meat really come together at the same time. So that's one of those methods if you're cooking a whole bird. Even if you're just cooking you know, a chicken breast or a chicken thigh or a chicken wing, the idea is to cook it over direct heat to get that nice crispy char on the outside of the skin. And then you can move it to the indirect heat, that convection style heat to where we know we're not going to burn the skin anymore. And we're going to just allow that chicken to come to, to the right temperature. I typically will cook it to about a, a temperature of about 160 degrees. 
Again, another great example of why you might want a good meat thermometer. And you want to make sure that you're actually getting that thermometer, not just maybe a quarter inch into the breast or the thigh. You want to make sure that you're taking it at the center and even at the bone to make sure that you're, you're pulling it off at a safe time. And then you let it rest. It's still going to cook up another five to eight degrees when you pull it off that grill. And that will be perfectly cooked. Great piece of chicken. I think one of the problems with chicken that makes it tricky is that it, like particularly chicken breast, it's uneven, right? So it's like, it'll be thin. And then as it gets to like the, the big part of the breast, it gets bigger and then it'll get smaller again. So, you know, the, the edges might be cooked, but like the middle is just still pink. Yeah. And you can, you can fix that problem by, you know, just taking a, a mallet and just kind of pounding it out or even just kind of pressing on it with the, the heel of your, your hand, just kind of creating that, that even source. I think probably one of my favorite techniques that we do in the book with chicken specifically is boneless chicken thighs. These have really come back into favor lately. They're super affordable. And truth be told, because it's the dark meat of the chicken, it loves high heat. You get a nice sear on it. You really can't mess it up uh, as long as you cook it. Even if you overcook it, it's still going to be really tender and juicy. And then we actually serve it with a kind of a board salsa. So we're, we're actually kind of doing a reverse marinade to add even more moisture to it. That's one of my favorite recipes in the book. It's a grilled chicken thigh with herb salsa. It's a foolproof chicken recipe that uh, is great for entertaining and uh, the leftovers are delicious too. All right. Seafood. Seafood's tricky because it can dry out fast if you're not grilling it right. So what's the, what's the secret there? Yeah, I think larger cuts of fish are more akin to cooking a steak. You know, like a, a grilled salmon is, is a great example. I mean, you're actually cooking salmon pretty similarly to what you would do on a, on a steak side because you want that internal temperature to be more of a medium style. And, and even for some of your other cuts like halibut and cod and other items like that. So you are cooking that over direct heat to develop that that sear. I, I often recommend if people have not really had a lot of experience grilling before, fish is one of those things that just always sticks to the grates. So one of the ways we prevent that is making sure that our grates are clean, making sure that we've pat the fish dry because we want to eliminate that moisture. So we develop the sear because when you're searing it, what happens is the proteins in the fish or any cut is actually kind of lifting itself off of the grate to stop from sticking. If it's too much moisture there, then it's actually just going to sit there and stick on the grill. And when you go to flip it, you're going to be frustrated by it. So one of the ways we could avoid that altogether is a, a, a grill basket, a fish basket. So where you're able to just lock it in and put it directly on the grate and just turn it within that basket and then open it up and serve it. So I think for those that are maybe just starting out on a piece of fish, it's cooking it hot and fast and then pulling it off the fire. You know, you don't have to move it a lot between zones, but a basket is one of those things that until you become very comfortable with it, you'll still be able to impress your guests with that beautiful presentation. Yeah, grilled salmon is my favorite. I just taste so tasty. What I did with grilled salmon, I grill it and then I just put like a pat of butter. Sure. Like to finish it off and just like let the butter melt. That's how I like it. It tastes delicious. Yeah. I mean, butter makes everything better. I mean, we do uh, in the book, a, a grilled salmon with kind of a, a creamy cucumber relish, which uh, is just kind of that balance between hot and cold and 
a little bit of tanginess to it. But uh, yes, yeah, I mean, grilled salmon is one of my favorites and it, it's really, really easy. It's it's a little more steaky like in, in terms of texture. So it actually holds up a little bit better like salmon and halibut compared to a more delicate fish like a trout or a flounder. Now, those are a little bit more difficult because the meat is so delicate. It's it's one that even the pros can can have break apart on them on the grill. So set yourself up for success and, and look for those cuts as you're just getting started. And you mentioned this earlier, you can, besides just grilling meat, you can also grill produce, vegetables, fruit. What are your favorite things, like sort of like no-brainer things you can grill that it's produce? Yeah, I mean, I think all of us think of summertime and grilled corn. So there's a recipe that we have, a grilled corn. Instead of just the traditional butter, we're adding some feta cheese and dill just to kind of take it to the next level. Really, any any vegetable, like my my kids, if I were to roast Brussels sprouts, they probably wouldn't eat them. But if I put a piece of asparagus or a Brussels sprout on the grill, there's just something about that flavor that they absolutely love. So I really think, you know, the idea of becoming a cereal griller is that it doesn't matter the course or the meal, we can all make it better over fire. Uh, That includes salads too. You know, lettuces, believe it or not, over direct heat will pick up uh, quite a bit of that smoky flavor and char, which just takes that, you know, Caesar salad or Cobb salad or whatever you're looking to do to the next level. Fruits are, are one of my favorites. You know, I'm a Southern guy. I've never apologized for that. One of my favorite desserts is a, a peach cobbler. But as I've gotten older, as we all do, I realize that I have to work out a lot harder if I want to eat that peach cobbler. So I, I love just a simple grilled peach on the grill. It's super straightforward. Maybe finish it with some honey, serve it with maybe a vanilla Greek yogurt if I'm being really good, vanilla ice cream if I'm not being so great. But I've really cut down a lot of the calories from the traditional peach cobbler by cutting out the carbs and all the extra butter. Uh, We have grilled watermelon. We've got grilled strawberries, figs. So you're just taking the natural sugars and allowing that Maillard reaction to occur. And it just transforms your everyday vegetable or fruit into something that's just even more delicious. Yeah, the grilled grilled peach sounds really good. I'm gonna, like, grill, <laughs> it is, like, trust put a, me. I, but I would probably put a little brown sugar on it. Uh, yeah, you can do off. that and butter, you know. Yeah, but little, uh, again, that, I was trying to. That, that'd I make know it you've more been doing a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah, so yeah, no, it sounds. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go try that. Well, well, Matt, we've kind of talked about high level tips on how you can cook uh, this different stuff, but the book's got lots of recipes where you go into detail. Where can people go to learn more about the book and the rest of your work? Yeah. Thanks so much, Brett. It's been a pleasure. And it's crazy. This is the fourth book. We've always had a chance to talk this through. So so thanks to that. And thanks for everybody for supporting. Obviously, you know, I, I want folks to go out and, and support their local bookstores. So this book is available nationwide wherever books are sold and also online. So we're completely opened up and uh, being able to to enjoy getting out once again and, and cooking with, with others. All right. Well, Matt Moore, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brett. My guest today was Matt Moore. He is the author of the book, Serial Griller. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Pick yourself up a copy. It's really, really good. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Serial Griller. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything, including Matt's cooking articles. Check that out. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Helps out a lot and if you 
done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding all the listening when podcast, but put what you've heard into action.